Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms 6, 1 through 10. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with we- with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Welcome to the Panador. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, in this new year, we have been making our way through the Psalms of Lament. And today, I just have one question to lead us back into those Psalms. And it is simply this Are you familiar with grief? Now, I want you to understand what it is that I'm asking in particular when I ask that question. Are you familiar with grief? I am not asking, have you ever experienced something that led you to grieve? Okay, that's a worthwhile question. That's a fine question. That's a question that might cast you back onto a memory of the past wherein there was some sorrow or loss that you endured. But today, in asking, are you familiar with grief, I want us to be more interested in the present than the past. Are you familiar in an everyday, ongoing sense with grief? Not just have you experienced grief in the past, but is it a part of your everyday and daily reality? See, I think sometimes we wrongly believe that grief is exclusively a punctuated experience that happens only in situations of extraordinary sadness, that it's an emotion that we only have to deal with or reckon with in the middle of some great loss, say, for example, when we lose someone that we love or perhaps when we experience the heartache that comes from the dissolution of a relationship. But in fact, grief is much more frequent and everyday and ordinary than that. Surely there are those punctuated experiences of it, but we live in a broken and fallen world and there is ongoing occasion for grief. In every moment of every day, even in the locality of our particular experience, not just in the news or somewhere in the world, there is occasion for grief. In our broken and twisted world, there's always a reason to grieve. Our world, in fact, is a grievous world. Now, that may sound a bit morbid, maybe a little bit dark. If we're not careful, our church might get a reputation (laughs) too late. Um... But this kind of grief that I'm speaking about does not necessarily preclude all the other emotions of human experience. You might be thinking, what about 
joy? What about optimism? What about enthusiasm? What about love? What about all these other places of human experience, experiences of the human heart? Well, the grief that I'm speaking of does not undermine those other emotional places, doesn't undermine those other heart experiences. In fact, the grief that I'm speaking of, the kind of everyday, daily, moment-by-moment grief, actually serves to deepen and add layers to all the other emotional experiences of life. Let me give you a sort of light-hearted example by way of a story of how I think this plays out in the mundane of the everyday. Uh, Recently, just the other day, uh, I took my son Micah grocery shopping with me. Micah's recently turned seven, uh, and we were going grocery shopping together. And what you need to know, the backdrop for this story is that my family and I live in the very southwest corner of the Westtown neighborhood, the neighborhood that we're, broader neighborhood that we're sitting in now. We live in the very southwest corner, so we're backed up against the metro tracks, which means that where we live, it's something of a well-to-do neighborhood, million-dollar homes seemingly going in every other month or week even. But just across the metro tracks from where we live, less than a quarter mile from where we live, it is a very different kind of neighborhood. Many of the homes there are boarded up. Many of the businesses are no longer in business. There's blight and graffiti there. Uh, Recently, just the last couple of years, I made friends with someone who was squatting in one of the homes less than a quarter of a mile from my home, squatting there with a number of other people who were addicted to various substances. So it's a much more difficult and troubled neighborhood, at least on the outside, what you can see and observe than the particular neighborhood where I live. Well, when I grocery shop, I like to cross over those metro tracks because there's an Aldi over there, and Aldi is cheap, and it's very convenient to get to, and they have these green chili burgers. Have you tried those? (laughs) Those are really good. Um, So I took my son over to Aldi, my son Micah over to Aldi, and he had actually never gone to that particular store with me. Typically, I grocery shop when he's in school. Um, I think this might have been MLK Day, actually. So he was out of school, and we were going grocery shopping together. And he was excited to go. Uh, He likes going on errands with Dad. And I let him sit in the front seat of our van. Don't tell his mom. She's in the nursery this week. And the recordings haven't been going up online, so I think I'm safe as long as we just all keep that a secret. Um, But we made our way over, and we're excited. We're bonding together. He'd recently had a birthday, and he got his first pack of baseball cards. It's really a great, wonderful time to be a dad. And we pulled into the Aldi parking lot, and I noticed, Micah noticing, that there were quite a few people out in front of the store in various states of disrepair, seemingly homeless people, loitering there out in front of Aldi, as is always the case uh, when I go shopping there. And I noticed Micah noticing that as we got out of the car and made our way to get our cart and then into the store. And then once we got inside, uh, we got to the dairy aisle. Uh, I happened to bump into a former member uh, of the Painted Door, someone who some time ago now moved on from our church. And in the 
working out of that transition, this person and I had had some difficult conversations. We'd remained friendly, but it had been sort of a hard transition to go through. And you just sort of bump into this person in the grocery store, and it's a bit awkward. Uh, and then your your seven-year-old pipes up and says, how come you're not at church anymore? <laughs> All right, they just have a way of kind of going right to the heart of the matter uh, with no shame. And so uh, this person and I, we did, we did pretty well, quite frankly. We sort of laughed at it together uh, and got through it together. And there wasn't some terrifying or terrible moment there. But in that moment, there was the kind of regular, everyday grief, pain, sorrow that comes from the reminder that in this life, even people who share affection for God and have been loved by God and share a faith together sometimes cannot figure out how to coexist in church together. And there's a grief in that. There's a sorrow in that. There's a sense of loss in that and a sense of longing for the day when we will lock arms with one another in eternity. Uh, And all of the difficulties and challenges therein will be resolved perfectly in our unity in Christ. So a light grief there, a light sorrow, a sort of everyday kind of sorrow. We made our way to the checkout aisle, and as we were going through the checkout aisle, uh, one of the people in front of us had to put back some of the items they had selected. There weren't enough funds available on their link card. And we made our way outside of the store, and uh, one of the men out there offered to take our cart for us and return it so that he could get the quarter back that is returned at Aldi, those of you familiar with shopping at Aldi. And when we made it back to the car, Micah asked me, why did that man want our quarter? You know, I think he said something like, I have lots of quarters. Um, And I'd take the time in that moment to explain unemployment to a seven-year-old. So a very mundane story, but I hope you're at least getting something of the picture that just in the daily rhythms of life, in the everyday rhythms of life, there is occasion for grief. If you're paying attention, this life is broken. This world is broken. It's twisted. There's things that are sorrowful that are happening all around you, things that you are particularly invested in, personally invested in, and things that you can just observe happening in and around the people that you're in proximity to. And even though there was sorrow, a sort of everyday common sorrow and grief that transpired on this shopping trip with my son, it did not diminish the other emotions and places of the heart that I experienced with him. In fact, I enjoyed the time immensely. I know that my son Micah enjoyed the time immensely. He's asked me to return on several occasions. And I think I could even make the case that having to explain some of those things to him and experiencing some of those troubles or awkwardness or grief or sorrow together enriched our time. Far be it from diminishing our time, it actually took us into deeper layers of life together. And it was an enriching experience for us both. This is what I'm speaking about when I speak of the sort of everyday grief. And let me ask you again, 
Are you familiar with grief? Are you familiar with that kind of just common, everyday sorrow? Is grief a sort of good friend or close friend that you rarely go too long without thinking of again, without encountering again in some way? Now, sometimes I'm sure you recognize this, those everyday sorrows insist on themselves. They come at us in a way that it's very difficult to ignore them. Other times, they're much more subtle, much more easily overlooked. Uh, It can be much easier to ignore them. But either way, whether they're insisting on themselves or sort of subtly lurking in the shadows haunting our lives, our first impulse, I guess I should speak for myself, my first impulse is to suppress that grief and that sorrow. To try for all I'm worth to look past it in some way, especially if I'm busy running errands or trying to meet deadlines or just trying to live life in a sort of light and chipper way. My proclivity is to keep things that make me sad off to the side or perhaps better said to push them down kind of bury them under distraction or drown them out with noise and there's plenty of noise plenty of anesthesia in our world to do that effectively and the more we do that we get better at it we get to where we can operate in a sort of automatic suppression where we really don't have to deal with deeply sorrowful things or grievous things on a daily basis. We can kind of wait for those punctuated, extraordinary moments of sadness and only have to deal with our grief then. We can live fairly oblivious to the fallenness or the brokenness or just the hard things of life in this twisted and broken world. That's really what I'm asking. That's what I'm getting at when I ask you, are you familiar with grief? I'm asking to what degree do you push and suppress that grief to the side or bury it down deep within you? The question is, why do we do this? Well, of course, no one likes pain. I shouldn't say no one. Very few like pain. I am married to someone who's run marathons. But very few people like pain. But beyond that obvious reason for why it is that we would push grief to the side, I think that there's a a deeper reason. And I think it's because we believe deep within ourselves that grief is our enemy. That grief somehow has within it the power to rob us of good life. To rob us of satisfying life. To rob us of a worthwhile life. And so we're sort of at war with grief. We want to defeat it. We think if we can claim victory over it, we'll have a better life. 
We want peace in our lives, not grief. And we juxtapose those two. You hear that a lot, especially among church people, this sort of longing for peace. And what we mean by that is a sort of peace that would mean I never have to grieve. I never have to feel sorrow. I never have to shed tears. We don't want to pray prayers like that of the ancient King David that we just read a moment ago in Psalm 6. David prays this at the start of Psalm 6, starting in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? You see this ancient King David, the writer of this psalm, he is convinced here in this prayer that this grief, this sorrow that he's experiencing in his life, he's convinced that it's worthless. He's convinced that it's meaningless. He's convinced that he's, if he's left to languish in this place of grief and sorrow, that he's going to wind up wasting his days in misery, die a miserable death, and therein be robbed of any opportunity to praise God be robbed of any opportunity for levity or laughter or singing or rejoicing. He's worried that his life is just going to be over. It's going to be spent and used up in grief. And of course, in David's mind, at the end of his life, when his days are spent, he envisions no opportunity in Sheol, in the place of the grave, in the place of loss and ruin and despair, where worms take over. He envisions no opportunity there for rejoicing or for celebration. He believes that grief is his enemy. He believes that there's no value in experiencing grief or in walking through grief. And so he wants relief. He's praying to the Lord, just take this pain away so that I can still spend days rejoicing, that I can still spend days worshiping you, delighting in you, delighting in your creation, seeing all of your goodness. Can any of you relate to that prayer? When you're unable to push grief to the side, unable to suppress it, when it sort of bubbles up to the surface in some way, do you share that feeling that this might be worthless, that this might be of no purpose, that these days full of grief are wasted? David's words here characterize your relationship with grief in any way. I know that they do for me. When grief bubbles up, even in the everyday sorrows of life, I am regularly disposed to thinking that it's pointless, and I try to push it away, try to push it down, try to numb it. This is actually where the kind of punctuated experience of grief can be really helpful where the extraordinary moment of sadness the loss of someone close to you the kind of stuff that happens in your life you know less than a dozen times say the kind of 
central pivots that define your life of sorrow and sadness. This is where those extraordinary moments can be really helpful because when they come, they reawaken a lot of the grief that you've been suppressing, a lot of the grief that you've been pushing out or pushing down. They force you to deal with it. Uh, I remember uh, just two years ago now when our friend and pastor Greg uh, passed away. Of course, many of you were here and experienced that and experienced the grief in the wake of that. There was such a flood of grief as we lost our dear friend and pastor that it surfaced lots of other kinds of grief that up to that moment in my, at the time, whatever it was, 36 years, I had not paid attention to. I didn't know that I actually lived with regular, ongoing, daily grief. And it was the overflow of that well of grief in me that brought some of those deep and hidden waters to light for the first time. And I found myself praying psalms like this one, praying along with David I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. In the flood of that grief, I discovered a new familiarity with grief that I've since found much more difficult to suppress. I think a lot of you might be able to tell a similar story. That upon going through some kind of extraordinary sadness, extraordinary loss in your life, it actually awakens you to the daily and mundane sorrows of the world in a way that you were not awake before you might find just a greater awareness of melancholy. A greater awareness of melancholy in your own soul, in your own person, and also in people that you interact with. Just that the world is sad. Quite sad. And many people in it are sad. And that this kind of hum of sadness is always there, underlying even the most joyful moments, contributing to them in some way, deepening them in some way. That's a good thing. If that's your story, if you resonate with that story, if you've gone through some great loss, if you've experienced some great trauma in your life, Loss and trauma is not good in its own right. If some horrible evil has been committed against you, that's not good in its own right. But the increased awareness, the awakening that can happen in the wake of such difficult and tragic things is a very good thing. And that's because grief is not our enemy. There's hard and sad things that happen in the world. 
Our enemy is at work in the world. There is evil in the world. We do have an enemy and enemies in the world. Grief is not among them. Grief is not our enemy at all. There's a reason why the songbook of Jesus, why the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, is so replete with songs and prayers of grief. More than half of the psalms in the book of Psalms are laments, well over half. God is saying something to us in that. If you and I were to put together a book of praise, a book of song, I don't know that that would be our first impulse for more than half of the songs to be songs of lament, songs of sadness, songs of grief and sorrow. God knows that this is not our enemy, and in fact, he is inviting us to not just pay attention to the grief and sorrow that is humming along within us in every daily moment, but to give voice to it, to bring it to the fore, to bring it to him. To pay more attention to it than we do almost any other aspect or facet of our lives. God knows something in that that we could not have thought up on our own. And that's this, that the road of grief is the road home. Far be it from our enemy, grief is the signpost that leads us to our true home. Grief is one of the greatest gifts that God can give us. David prays in Psalm 31, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. All manner of causes and reasons for David's sorrow and grief given here. Some of them his own sin, some of them his enemies or those who oppose him many, many reasons for grief in this world. None of the reasons for grief, none of the provocations of grief are good in and of themselves, but the resulting grief and sorrow is nothing short of holy. In fact, this Psalm 31, this grief-stricken Psalm of David, was the Psalm that was on the mind and heart of Jesus as he went to the cross. Actually, Luke's gospel records for us that the opening lines of this lament, the opening lines of Psalm 31, wound up being the last words of Jesus. Psalm 31 opens this way, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me, Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock 
and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. That final verse, into your hand I commit my spirit, became the final refrain, the last words of Jesus as he headed into the depths of death and then subsequently resurrection. These words of lament, these words of grief were the very pathway that he walked on his way home, on his way to real life. And these were the words that his entire life really was moving him toward. Everything that happened in the life of Jesus was taking him to this moment, to this point. This was his moment of completion, his moment of perfection, his moment of most clearly seeing the way home. And it was a moment of deep grief, of deep sadness, but also deep trust. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. That is faith born of grief. That's what it sounds like. It's a desperate cry for God to rescue and save. Suppressed grief, grief that's pushed down or pushed out, that's grief held in your own hands. It's you trying to navigate through grief on your own. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Is grief propelling you home? Jesus did not face the cross alone because he knew what to do with sorrow. He knew that sorrow did not belong to him. He knew it didn't need to be suppressed in himself. He didn't need to face it alone, but that he could go to his father with it, that he could put it in the hand of his father, that he could share it with his God. And he had much to share. Actually, the whole life of Jesus, if you look at it through this paradigm, you see him begin with enthusiasm and exuberance and excitement and be slowly matured and perfected and made complete in a sorrow that is weighty joy. The sorrow of Christ on the cross is weighty and glorious and provides layers and depths to his joy that simple exuberance can never reach. Jesus had much grief throughout his life to share with his father. The prophet Isaiah, of course, famously tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. King James says familiar with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was very familiar with grief. He faced it every day in the companionship and strength of his father, and he allowed this grief to lead him home. Rather than suppress it and push away from his true home, he allowed this grief to lead him home.
the popular conceptions of heaven that you might encounter in such great works of art as, say, The Simpsons. I mean that in all sincerity. Don't laugh. Those conceptions, they actually mislead us. And they have misled us. Because heaven is not a place where we escape grief. Heaven is the place where grief is reshaped into weighty joy. Where the material of grief becomes weighty, glorious joy. The scripture's picture of heaven in the book of Revelation, it's a bloody affair wherein we worship a crucified lamb, a lamb who was slain. Jesus is referred to as the lamb in the book of Revelation over and over again, 27 times. By comparison, he's called king just four times. Heaven is the place where grief, all of our grief, is reshaped into weighty joy, and the crucified lamb with scars in his hands and scars in his feet is heralded as the glorious one. Grief is the road home. It's not our enemy. It's not to be despised. It's not to be resisted. It's to be faced in the power of God. Grief taught Jesus what it is to live with his Father in his humanity. Jesus demonstrates to us in his life of grief how it is that we might step into the life of God. How it is that we might begin to participate in the life of the Father. How we might begin to dance in the life of the Trinity. Grief is a blinking light every day, every moment calling you home, calling you into the life of God, calling you into the deepest places of love and joy and beauty and delight. Don't despise it. Learn to pay attention to it. So our question, are you familiar with grief? It might be better asked, are you familiar with Jesus? Because it's this man of sorrows who knows the way home. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to hurt. And we spend our lives, all of us, much of our lives, I should say, trying to push the result of hurting as far from us as we can trying to escape grief and rid ourselves of it we need your spirit we need the spirit of Christ we need you to lead us into those deep waters we need your help to trust you that those waters are still and safe even when we feel as though we're drowning there 
Help us in these ways. We pray that our church would be a place that is safe for the brokenhearted, that it's a place where grief is allowed and paid attention to. And that people who are particularly disposed to seeing and acknowledging their daily grief would be valued. That we would follow their lead. Trust that you are at work there. Amen.